People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Melody T. McLeod, MD, is our guest today, and she's the author of Black Women's Wellness, your I've Got This Guide to Health, Sex, and Phenomenal Living. Dr. McLeod is an obstetrician, gynecologist, public speaker, author, and media consultant. She lectures nationwide on women's health, sex, and social issues. She has appeared on CNN, ABC, NBC, and Court TV, and in the New York Times, USA Today, The Washington Post, The New England Journal of Medicine, Parade, and Essence. Please welcome Dr. Melody McLeod. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am just honored to be here and pleased, and I, I look forward to uh, having a wonderful time with you today. Thank you. So, Dr. McLeod, your book addresses issues specific to Black women. You don't sugarcoat things. You really deep dive into the issues and provide a path to a healthier and happier life, which is so exciting. But we wanted to start out and just learn a little more about you, about your family, and how you became a physician. Oh, well, thank you for that opportunity to share some of that. I was born in New York City. I'm an only child. I grew up poor in Washington Heights, uh, part of New York City. I lived in a six-floor walk-up apartment building and on the fifth floor of that. I never knew any of my grandparents. I had an absentee father. I was raised by my mother, who did the best she could earlier on, but later on, actually, I came to learn that she actually had some I'll just say some issues that I actually had to protect myself from. So I kind of didn't have any support. But fortunately, I kept my head down. I will say my pastor that I came to have, Reverend Dr. Wyatt T. Walker, who used to work with Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Reverend Walker was Dr. King's executive administrative assistant. So he was my pastor and he did help me out tremendously. So I grew up poor, did go to Catholic school. Fortunately, was able to do that. And in high school, I was one of five black students at the school that I attended, Mother Cabrini High School. I didn't want to go to Cabrini at first. I wanted to go where all the black kids were going, but my grade, <laughs> good enough, <laughs> good enough for me to go to Cabrini. My mother did make that decision. She says, no, you're going to Cabrini, which was good, and it, it served me well. So you basically are just really bright. So you were a really, really bright <laughs> student, which is incredible, right? I studied hard. I guess I do just kind of have that mind. And, and one other thing that kind of led me into medicine, I think, or was an inspiration for me to go into medicine, was I actually had a black female pediatrician when I was a little girl. You know, looking back on it, I realized that to see her, I remember I used to love to go to her office and smell the rubbing alcohol in the air. for Because <laughs> back in the day, that's how doctor's offices smell, like rubbing alcohol. Right, right. That's right. That's so right. And also, I remember hearing that she helped people feel better. And I guess that stuck with me of just that's my spirit. And when I got to high school, in fact, I was grateful that I had Dr. Doris Weathers because my high school principal, I'll never forget this, she was a history teacher and the vice principal. I remember her telling my mother at the end of a PTA meeting, make sure she takes typing because Black people don't become doctors. But I already knew better because I had Dr. Weathers. Yes, right. And you saw, you saw that Black people can do more than exactly. So is that what inspired you to become a physician or what happened? What made you decide to be a physician? Well, surely Dr. Weathers 
had something to do with it, I think. You know, just the imprint of her care and, again, hearing that she helped people feel better. I, I guess that had an imprint on my mind and my spirit and my heart. I was intrigued by that. And actually, in high school, I became what used to be called a candy striper. Oh, yes. yes, of course. I remember that <laughs> with my little red and white striped uniform <laughs> yeah. with white blouse underneath that. So I, I did that, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed being at the hospital, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital is where I did that. And, you know, I, I just enjoyed being around patients and seeing the doctors do what they do. So that was it. What inspired you to take what you learned as being a doctor, which we'll talk more about, and to write this book? Well, one, I enjoy medicine. I love the purity of the practice of medicine. I have to say right now, medicine, the profession has kind of become an industry in many ways, and I don't think it's as pure as it used to be, and I don't feel it's as good as it needs to be. I think things need to kind of get back to the Marcus Welby days, quite honestly. Um, yeah. But I, I love medicine. I love educating people. I like writing. I kind of learned that in my early days that I like to write. So I guess putting all that together led to previous books and now this book, especially at this particular time in our society. And your first chapter is the state of Black women's health. Can you talk about that? As a physician, of course, I've taken care of women from all ethnicities, not only Black. I mean, I'm a Black female, but it's not that I only took care of Black patients. In caring for everybody, when everyone with the anatomy and the physiology is normal, we are all the same. We're all the same. Normal. Okay. There are sometimes anomalies or abnormalities, you know, structural abnormalities or things may not operate like they're supposed to. That can happen. But when normal, we are all the same, regardless of our race or our skin color or our hair texture. Unfortunately, Black women's health data and statistics and outcomes are not always equal to the majority. And so... In the beginning of the book, I address some of that and, you know, how the numbers are so disparate. And that's something that I wanted to bring attention to at this particular time. You know, I, I want people to realize that even though that has been our history, we need to take steps and we can create a new legacy of Black women's health and wellness. And you see that happening by Black women becoming more educated about their health. Is that why you've decided to write this book? Yes, that is my hope. Unfortunately, there really has not been a book geared specifically to Black women's health in about 20 years. I wrote one 20 years ago where I related the physical health to spiritual health, but really there hasn't been one written in a long, long time. And I think it's just important that women have a resource. And I will say of other health books that have been written, physician authored about women's health, for one, it may just be one topic. It might just be menopause. It might be just breast cancer. Sometimes people can't afford to buy one book for this and one book for that and another book for that. So I wanted to have a comprehensive resource for people. And also, too, even in those books that are written by other physicians, rarely have I seen where there's a sentence, certainly not a paragraph and certainly not a chapter, geared specifically to Black women's health, despite the fact that our numbers are so far off the chart compared to other people. So I, I wanted a directed focus, but I include women's information to everybody, Black, white, Hispanic. As Dora said at the very beginning, she said that you take it and you state it. You're not making people necessarily feel good. You're just saying, hey, let's look at the facts. Let's see what's happening out there. And you state them pretty clearly, which both Dora and I thought was just so impactful because it makes you want to do something. Right. I just feel, you know, we can't act like some things aren't happening. We need to 
pay attention and know what we're facing. I mean, I have asthma. I didn't have it as a child. I have what we call adult onset asthma. I got it when I turned 40. In fact, I misdiagnosed myself. It was like, let me go to another doctor and see why I can't hardly breathe. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and sometimes, too, as Black women, the majority of folks may be very church-minded and just want to pray something away. Well, I'm just going to pray about it and I'm not going to deal with it. And we can't act like things aren't real. So with regard to my asthma, for a minute, I said, oh, I don't want asthma. There's a thing that we say in the Black church. You know, I'm not claiming that. I, you know, because if you claim it, you're putting it on you. I used to say, oh, I, I don't want asthma. But, you know, my name is Dr. Melody McLeod, and I am an asthmatic. And I need to keep that in mind so that I do what I have to do so that I can keep living. Because if I don't act responsibly, I could die. So I want people to have and be responsible about their health and to know their family history and to know what risks they face and things like that, to be more proactive about their health. So this book is completely comprehensive and it covers so much. What are the top five medical issues that Black women face? Well, for everybody, heart disease, of course, is the number one killer of everybody, men, women, Everybody except Asians, in fact, the number one killer of everybody except Asians is heart disease. Mm-hmm. Okay? There's heart disease, there's obesity and diabetes, maternal mortality and infant mortality is related to that. Also, cancer deaths uh-huh. and then, of course, HIV AIDS. When it comes to cancer deaths, for instance, with breast cancer, more white women may get breast cancer, but more black women die from it. When it comes to pregnancy... Black women die more than twice the rate of white women with pregnancy-related mortality. Infant mortality is almost three times that of the white population. So there are all these outstanding factors that need to be paid attention to. That's just unbelievable how the outcomes just are so different. Have you seen changes? Are things changing? Well, a few years ago, I wrote an article in AJC, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, about maternal mortality. And I've noticed really in the last three or four years, there's been a lot more talk about maternal mortality in the Black female. The main factor really is that we need people to show up for early prenatal care. That is really the key thing, that sometimes Black women, they may not have insurance or they may not have access to medical services. And we can get to that when it gets to the mental health piece but and so psychosocial stressors. But it's important that everybody show up for early prenatal care because that makes a key difference with the health of the mother and the health of the fetus and subsequently the health of the newborn baby. What are some of the psychosocial stresses? Oh, my goodness. There are plenty, which is something that as Black women, we do experience that, truthfully, white women do not experience, Mm -hmm. okay? It's it's just a fact. In the book, too, I have a version of a chart I created years ago that I entitled Societal Stress and Black Women's Health, The Rejection Connection. You might remember the comedian Rodney Dangerfield. His something was, you know, all my, you know, I don't get respect. respect." Okay. (laughs) And it was kind of funny, and he made millions of dollars with that line. But in the societal framework, Black women, comparatively, are not as well respected. You know, our hair is criticized. We have negative media imagery. We're all angry or loud or mean or unkempt or crass. Even within the Black community, little inside, there's the whole thing of colorism, which also spreads to others too, the the skin color. You know, the lighter skin people are less threatening than the chocolate people, okay? Things like that. So 
again, the negative media imaging that we are the least married demographic of women, and that's extra strain and stress on women who are by themselves. Some of them may have, you know, had a child or two or more without the benefit of a husband or a spouse. So there's that. Also, too, in the Black community, Black women really are succeeding educationally and business-wise at greater rates than Black men are. So for those who only want to marry in the Black race, you know, there's this disparity of education. More Black women are graduating high school, graduating college, going on to grad school, starting businesses compared to the Black men. And so with that disparity, it's putting more strain and stress on Black women. And with that psychosocial stress, all those things affect their cortisol, affects their stress hormones, which can lead to hypertension and heart disease and obesity and overeating. And all that ties together. So that's what I bring out in the book. Yeah. What you said is fascinating. Again, needs to be heard that Black women do have more stresses. Just it's a fact. Like you said, it just is. Given the situation, like you said, they take on a lot of responsibility in the community, right? I get followed when I go to a store, you know, and, and I have to, I mean, even to the point where I sometimes have turned, like when I walk in a store, the clerk may be over there somewhere doing whatever he or she is doing. And I walk in and next thing I know, they're on my rear end, you know, following me around the store. You know, I might even just be looking at a little $20 thing of earrings on the rack. And there have been times when I've even turned around and said to them, you know, you know can, can I help you with something? You know, because they're like, <laughs> I don't know the store, but, you know, can I help you with something? That doesn't happen with white people. It doesn't no, happen. With it does people. not. I appreciate when whites recognize that that does not happen to you. Yeah. It happens to us. I don't have on my head that oh, I'm a physician. I really can afford these $20 pairs of earrings. <laughs> you know, I'm right. a good person. I don't have a criminal record. And what does that do to the mental health for Black women? It's draining. I mean, it, it, it's tiring, honestly. It, it is, it's very tiring. And, and no matter of your social strata, it's a drain and you feel it every day. And in the back effect of the book, I have racism's effect on mental health. It's just a pressure ever before you, honestly. I mean, it, you know, we may keep going, but it is a constant pressure. You know, it, it's so true. Like, Doro and I, as much as we can empathize, we don't know. We're grateful to you for putting this in a book and offering this up for all of us to talk about. So one of the things your book addresses, life management tools to help people. So can we talk about some of those helpful things that one can turn to as a tool? I included some of that from my own personal experience. Like, you know, like I said, I really didn't have hardly any family to support me. And unfortunately for me, I've never married. I don't have any kids because someone broke up with me on my college graduation night and I went into a hole and I didn't feel pretty and I didn't feel sexy. Oh. And I didn't think anybody would marry me and love me. You know, I, I've learned one life lesson is don't let others define you to you, you know, because unfortunately I let that person's action define me to me that I wasn't marriage worthy. I mean, really, I've, I've lost years of my life. It was only after I finally said a few choice words to him many, many years that after that. <laughs> that you released it. That you're like, yeah. <laughs> and really, it was an ongoing stress. And I finally had to say, listen, you know, you made your choice. It wasn't me. He's not happily in his situation. So I finally had to, like I said, say a few choice words. But I realized I <laughs> lost years of my life based on that action, you know. 
And right. so that's one key thing. Don't let others define you to you and know your worth. In this day and time, unfortunately, we see a lot of kids and teenagers being caught up with social media and that's affected their mental health. And I really am on a tear right now to try to get people, including parents, put those phones down, model for your children, because when they see you with the phone in your hand yeah. all the time, and that's what they're doing, and the kids, their mental health is being affected. So just allow some time to just be, just be in the moment, get out, take a walk, enjoy nature. Don't always be on social media and, and looking what, what other people are doing. You know, it's, it's just too much of a drink. Money management. I you address that. That's key. I find, and this is a concern I have in particular for the Black community, but for everybody, really, People are paying hundreds and maybe even $1,000 for a pair of sneakers because an athlete's name is on them. I mean, I remember I used to have kids back in the day for like, yeah. <laughs> right. Some people don't even know what kids are, but you know, they were <laughs> we know, we know kids what are. kids are. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just money management. What, you know, and, and also, too, when it comes to black women's health in particular. Yes. Again, some people may say, we don't have money for this. Or, I don't have money to go to the doctor. I tell people, listen, if you are spending money at the hairdresser on a regular basis or going to get your nails done at a regular basis or you're buying that Gucci bag <laughs> or whatever, you have some money to at least go to the doctor once a year and get a checkup done that could save your life. Yeah. We have to make our priorities. We have to reallocate our funds. You know, we maybe have to sacrifice. I do my own nails for the most part. I like doing my nails. It's kind of relaxing and do my nails. And I don't need to pay $40, you know, or whatever it costs to just get my nails so just reallocate those funds and, and put some money away. I love that you address beauty and you say in the book that taking excellent care of all parts of our bodies is really the first step to becoming our most attractive selves, just taking care of ourselves, not necessarily the outward appearances. You know, we are all beautiful and it's our insides that are the important things. It really is. I mean, you know, we could take off the, I don't wear them, but fake eyelashes and take off the fake nails and all that. But who you really are is your inner self, your spirit, your soul, the energy you put forth into the world, how you treat other people, how you treat yourself. Uh, in fact, you know, the, that's the thing now, too, that I'm even dealing with learning to, you know, I'm, I'm a giver. I give a lot to people. I'm learning and have been recently told <laughs> that I need to learn to give to myself more. You know, have to allow time for yourself and give to yourself more because you become expended. And so, yeah, that inner beauty is who you really are and what you put out to the universe. Talk a little bit more again about how Black women, how can they do that? say they do have the stressors, like you said, it's an idea of sort of reimagining yourself. What do you say? Like, I've got to reallocate my funds, but you're educating them to do that. So Dora and I are big proponents. If you get educated in something, then you do it. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Knowledge is power. I really believe that. Knowledge uh -huh. is power. And that's, again, a key reason why I wrote this book. And I don't expect even people to read a health book cover to cover as you might a novel. You know, people may not do that. Okay, that'd be great if they did. And I tried to make this book an easy, relatable read. You know, I put in some personal anecdotes in there, things like that. So it's not purely all hard-nosed medicine. But I want people to be empowered, to be an empowered patient, an empowered person, 
And so with the knowledge in the book, and also starting out with knowledge of your family history, I think, and this, again, this applies to everybody, really. Know your family history so you know the base from which you start. You know, you know what family risks you are facing just starting your life. You know, in the beginning, I have a checkbook, family medical history, and I have conditions. And then I have mother, father, sister, brother, cousins, grandma, whatever. That's a baseline. And then at the back of the book, I actually have a health inventory. You know, just take some time with yourself and relax and just kind of look and go through your whole what we call systems, you know, just check your skin, check your nails, check your hair, examine your breasts, you know, think about your joint pain and kind of just check, 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 check. And then take that to your doctor because we as a physician, we may see things that the layperson may not see that are clustered together. Oh, that's so good. And, and I guess what you're saying is partner with your doctor, sort of learn to say, OK, here's the information I know. Here's what do you know? And let's do this together. Exactly. Because we are, you know, we're here to, to help and take care of you. And, and I encourage people, everyone, to go to your doctor armed with some questions, write them down before you go, because otherwise going to the doctor can be stressful. You know, even what's called the white coat syndrome, just going to the doctor may raise people's blood pressure just by being in the doctor's <laughs> office. That happens. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so write your questions down in advance. In this day and time, don't let the doctors rush you out of the office. I mean, honest to God, because a lot of doctors are jumping to the clock of the insurance company. No, you deserve your time. So go there prepared. Do you deliver babies still? I've stopped all of that. I've stopped all that. I get to sleep now at night. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How many babies did you deliver? Do you even have an idea? I stopped counting years ago. <laughs> yeah. so I, have long, I have no idea. But I have to say that I'm honored that I've delivered a good number of babies. Yes. I had a wonderful experience. And I'll try to make this real quick. A couple of years ago, this is during COVID, but we were all masked at a little gathering for someone and one of my patients, an optometrist. She said, oh, you know, come sit with me. And there was some gentleman sitting two chairs over. And I said, okay. And when I got to the table, I sat between the two of them. And, and again, we, were all, we all had our masks on. And so Dr. Burns, my patient, she started talking to this woman who was approaching us. And she said, oh, I want to introduce you to Dr. McLeod. And the woman just let out this scream all of a sudden. Oh. <laughs> and it turned out that the young man who I was sitting next to was one of my Dr. McLeod babies. No way. <laughs> oh, my God. It was so wonderful. That's awesome. I, I cried. I wept. <laughs> I think I didn't realize how well they really, it was, it was a very weeping, sobbing yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize how well respected I was. Yeah, and I'm still like the impact. In the yeah. Community. Well, we'll never forget yeah, the one that us. delivered and our just, babies. Right. Yeah, that That's was really, awesome. really great. That's so neat. Do you deal, or when you were doing, did you deal much with post traumatic depression? Yeah, there there are some times where people have postpartum depression. Postpartum. Um, it does happen. It's a very real thing. Uh, the whole anticipation of the pregnancy and the buildup and the excitement, and then the baby is born. You know, sometimes some women feel a letdown till you have this beautiful baby in front of you that you have to really take care of. And it, it, some people are just strained and wondering, can they do it? It is important for people to now realize, I think more people are paying attention to the fact that it does happen. And husbands or fathers are being more supportive. The medical community is more aware of that now, too. What do you do about it? Well, one is awareness and also for those around the mother to recognize 
okay, she's, you know, she's not seeming right or on target or on point or for someone else to recognize that there's some lack of interest in doing things. Or sometimes the mothers may not even feel like taking care of the baby. It's kind of an uncomfortable feeling of what do I do with this? You know, what do I do with this person? A feeling of inadequacy. So one thing is for people around her to recognize it, to try to encourage her and together to go get some help. Again, the medical community is more aware of it. There are now counselors specific to postpartum depression. Postpartum, yeah. Sometimes it requires some medication. It requires some therapy, some counseling. And most times people come out of it. You know, sometimes we hear tragic stories, you know, even recently about, you know, the mother may end up hurting the child or something like that. But that's not usually what happens, thank goodness. Speaking of um, babies and sex and (laughs) but you talk about something that Trisha and I talk about a lot which is healthy relationships being the biggest determinant of a healthy and happy life and I think it's awesome that you address the importance of having healthy relationships we are all of these things as human beings okay we are physical beings we are emotional. We have emotions. Some of us have professional goals. Most women have maternal instincts, but we also have a need for love. And we also have sexual desires. I mean, that's just a natural instinct, just like sleep and thirst and hunger. And that's not to be minimized. I try to let people see, in fact, we are all of those things. And we can't deny that those things happened. Years ago with my other book, which again was about health and spirituality, a meeting planner asked me to come speak. And I said, oh, sure. And then the talks kind of went from, instead of just talking about fibroids and infections and things, she said, do you think you could talk to the women about sex? You know, she kind of listened. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, of course we can, because we need to appreciate all of who we are. None of us got here without that ever happening, you know. Exactly. And exactly. you also address the mixed interracial relationships, at least in this book on page 181. You talk about that and how that's something that, again, probably isn't talked about, but now is being talked about and um, how that impacts the women. We're seeing more and more interracial relationships of really more Black women with white men, with non-Black men. Okay, those numbers are increasing because over the years, there have been and still continues to be If there are interracial relationships involving Blacks, it's mostly a Black man with a white woman. That can be a delicate factor for people. I tell Black women to don't limit yourself. You know, don't limit yourself to only look for a Black man. If that's your thing, okay, fine. But, you know, spread a wider net, especially given that there is an educational inequity and off balance, you know. Open your net up and be more open to that. So we are finding that that's happening more. I'm happy to see that. I have to tell women, you know, to get out of your head that of some kind of slave master mentality, because some people say, oh, no, I'm not going to be his slave. Just stop. You know, some things I like, just just stop with that. If your man's want to take care of you and be good to you and you're happy and he makes you happy and you make him happy, then then go for it. You want someone who's going to respect you and love you and be good to you hopefully be a good husband or a good father to your children. So I'm, I'm all for, I'm all for that. Just in this short period of time, you've taught us that the health of black women encompasses so much more than we know. 
What are the top takeaways from your book that you want people to leave with? Number one, again, be cognizant of your past history in the family. Be proactive regarding your own medical journey. Be proactive with getting medical care in a timely fashion. Embrace all of who you are. Govern your finances so that you have a better lifestyle and not be caught up with some of the trappings of our society. And at the back of the book, I actually have four little things. One is guard your garden. Okay. <laughs> guard your garden. Be well read. Tend that body and sweat that head. So basically, guard your garden is, of course, when it comes to STDs. You know, you, you again, we were just talking about sex. Yeah. Sex is to be great and enjoyed and it feels good. It gets those endorphins going and you get better sleep at night. And it's all really, really good when it's good. But sometimes there are infections and people can be promiscuous and they're at higher risk of HIV, AIDS, STDs, things like that. So be careful who you're allowing into your secret garden, into your special space. Guard your garden. Be well read. Again, knowledge is power. Pick up a book, this health book, other books, you know, learn about philosophy and things like that. It keeps the brain moving. Tend that body. Yes, you can do the outside grooming of all that and all that, but you also need to make sure you're getting your checkups done, doing your breast self-exams. Don't let things fester and get to be far extended medically before you get care. And sweat that head. You know, exercise <laughs> is important. You know, and you don't have to run an hour a day to get that exercise. And you can take short little walks, you know, 10-minute walks here and there and break that up throughout the day. So those are my four kind of take-home points. Or really, more, that was more than four, but that's like the, the little nuggets. Awesome. Thank you. This has just been an incredible informational time spent with you. So thank you so much for being on Health Gig. Oh, well, I, again, I'm just pleased and honored that you have me here. I I've seen the wonderful people that you've uh, interviewed in the past, and I'm just humbled to be in that lot. And we hope your book is a bestseller yes. because it's just filled with so much great information. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>